I'm so glad that y'all are here today. You know, um, the next couple of Sundays, we've got a couple of special things planned, and and, uh, I just want to let you in on that. Uh, We have an ordination Sunday next week. Uh, We're going to be ordaining uh, Terry Han and and, uh, Brian Smith and and Travis Teague uh, to the deacon ministry, and so I hope that you will come and and, uh, be a part of that service, special time. And then the next Sunday, October 10th, our missionary friends from Honduras, uh, Greg and Gene Hines, will be here to share in service. And uh, we're, gonna, we're excited to hear what God is doing in Honduras. But we're also going to have a potluck luncheon right after church. So uh, bring something, and we'll put it on the table, and we'll share together, and uh, we'll fellowship not only with one another, but with our missionary friends uh, from South America. And so what a, what a blessing that is. But uh, I, I guess Central America would be more appropriate. But um, I just want you to know that I love you all. And, um, you know, when we preach through God's word, sometimes his, his word uh, steps on our toes. But, uh, you know, it's with all the love that I have for the body of Christ. And I want you to know the truth. And uh, you know that I love you and you know that I'm here for you. And uh, I just want to share that because today we have a tough passage and um, I, I hope that you're here to tune in to what God's Word has for us. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, and um, we'll get to that in just a little bit. You know, so let me just recap here some. The Israelites, they had returned from their exile in Babylon. They'd been carried off into captivity. They, they spent 70 years there. They came back. Uh, Jerusalem had been uh, rebuilt. The temple had been re- restored. But... The Israelites had not learned the lesson from the exile. They were back, but they didn't learn what they needed to learn while they were in their captivity. And they they had grown skeptical of God's love. They were careless in their worship. They were indifferent to the truth. They were disobedient to the covenant that they had with God. They were faithless in their marriages, and they were stingy in their offerings. And so these are the things that Malachi was, was uh, challenging them with that, you know, you guys still don't get it here. And, and it's to this carnal and rebellious people that God sent Malachi. And his name actually means uh, my messenger. So, so this is a messenger from God. And, and it was the, the first message that God put on his lips was, I have loved you. I have loved you. I mean, isn't that what we all want, is to be loved, to be known, to be fully known, to be loved? And that's the kind of God that we serve, that he knows us and he loves us anyway, despite our our shortfallings. You know, the great temptation for Israel in the Old Testament, and I want to say for the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament and today, is to forget that we are just pilgrims here. That we are just passing through. This this world is not our home. We have a home in heaven. You know, God's call to repentance. He continued as he focused attention on another area that they were falling short in. And and this is huge because, you know, the, the priests had failed in their responsibility to teach the people. The priests had failed the people. And brothers and sisters, I don't want that on my watch. I don't want to carry that. 
I don't want to stand before Almighty God someday and him say, why did you not tell them what I told you? Why did you not share with them? Why did you not teach them what my word says? And so as I look at this, it's, it's convicting. And, and, and what happens is because the priests failed in their job to teach the people God's laws, the result was they had a disregard for God's standard of marriage. Now five times in our passage here, we're going to read the phrase breaking faith in the New uh, International Version. It says breaking faith. In, in the NASB and in, in the King James Version, it says to deal treacherously. And really this idea is, is of looting something, looting something, stealing something that should have been protected. Something that should have been protected, and it's very closely tied to the word in in verse 10 and verse uh, 14, covenant. And so you have something that should have been protected that was being stolen away. See, a covenant was a solemn and binding mutual agreement between two parties. And an oath was made, and it was formally ratified by an external act. Something externally brought this all together. And this is like what the Old Testament talks about and what it means in the term that it calls shalom. It's it's, it's a peace, but it's also more than a greeting and and it has with it a blessing of wholeness. It implies wholeness in all of our relationships, our relationships with ourselves, our relationships with ourselves, our relationship with God, and our relationship with our spouse. And so when you, you give this greeting of shalom, you are saying, is, is every, I wish blessing and wholeness on all of your relationships. Not only as the people of God, not only as a relationship with God, but also in your home. And so that's what this is talking about. All of our relationships are to be held together by essentially keeping the covenant that encompasses the entire community of faith. And so when we break faith, we are breaking faith not only with our spouse, not only with God, but we are also breaking faith with all of those who are in the community of faith. See, no one sins on their own. We're all connected with one another. This is important because the Lord accused his people, Judah, of breaking the covenant of marriage that he had established for their happiness, for their good. And notice what the Lord calls his people to do through Malachi. I want to read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 and following, down through verse 16. And it says this, it says, God's word says, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. 
As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Loving Father, I thank you for your word, and Father, I thank you for how your word challenges us, and Father, we need to hear your word. And Father, we're thankful that you gave us your love letter to us, Father, to tell us how much you love us. So Father, I pray today that we would hear that message loud and clear, how much you love us. And Father, I pray that you would just guide our hearts. I pray that a great repentance would fall upon us. I pray, Father, that we would be restored in our relationships, in our relationship with you, and in our relationships with one another. Father, may you be glorified as your spirit moves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, the Lord calls his people through Malachi to repent. It's a call, and it's a call to unity. And you see, his, his call to repentance begins with a reminder of their unity as a people. The one God as their creator, they had one God, one father, and their covenant relationship was bound with him, but also to one another. And this is who God is. He's he's in relationship with us, but he's also in relationship with us to one another. And notice in verse 11, it says, um, the the, the God, uh, the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And, and this really refers to his chosen people and, and, and the ones he has set apart for a special purpose. But notice also at the end of verse 11, it says, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. See, his people were breaking faith with him and with one another. And in those days, most of the religious learning took place in the home. And so if you have Jewish men, the Israelites, who were marrying foreign women, okay, who were idol worshipers, who were pagans, okay, and and they're bringing them into the home, and so what chance did they have of raising godly offspring, those who knew God? It was corrupting the true faith of Israel. And so the Lord warned that those who violated the unity of his people, They would be cut off from the tents of Jacob. They would be cut off. 
I mean, they're no longer your people because you have made this choice. Now, principle one, number one here is keep faith with others. Don't allow your relationships to rupture. You see, we have relationships with one another and we're saints who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. But we also, things get messy when we talk about relationships. And sometimes we let those relationships fester and, and, and rupture. And as believers, we are all in the same family because we have the same father. And so we must keep faith with one another. And when it says there the word profane, it's talking about to wound, to dissolve those relationships. See, I wonder if another believer has wounded you. I wonder if someone has wounded you in some way. See, my guess is that you've been hurt at least once at some level. My other question is, have you wounded someone else? And I would say probably you have at least twice because we probably wound twice as much as we are wounded. Maybe you'd rather just dissolve some relationships. It's easier just to avoid people you may not like, treating them as if they don't exist. But listen, we have one father. We have one father. We are all part of his family. The one who created us and we are in covenant with him through Jesus Christ. So let's live out the community challenge that we find in Ephesians 4.3 that says make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then in Romans 12, 18, it says, for if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. See, the Lord calls us to unity. He calls his people to unity as well as he calls us to sincerity. We see a call here to sincerity. The men who had married foreign women were told that God would no longer accept their offering. He would no longer be pleased with their offering. And their response, their response was to flood the altar with their tears. Oh, we can make such a great act of it, can't we? How heartbroken we are as long as we get our way. They were very dramatic. When they asked why their offerings were unacceptable, the prophet reminded them of their unfaithfulness to their Jewish wives. The wife of your youth, the wife of your marriage covenant. Yet here is another call to repent. To obey is better than sacrifice. Tears of anguish cannot replace the honoring our sacred vows of marriage. You know, you, you, you see men all the time that are, that are crying over the fact that their wife is gone. Or maybe it's vice versa. But it's like we've got to spend the time. We've got to do that. We've got to protect our marriage. We've got to do the things that, that contribute to that. And men, if you are looking at other women, you are undermining your marriage. You need to repent of that. that. 
God calls his people to be sincere worshipers who approach him with clean hands and a pure heart. Principle two is keep faith with God. Keep faith with God. Don't unite with an unbeliever. See, God's people had not only pillaged their promise to one another, but they had disengaged themselves from God. That's what verse 11 says. Judah has dealt treacherously, has broken faith, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Man, these are some strong words. And this word abomination... This word abomination is translated as detestable. It means to be morally disgusting and repulsive. And this term was reserved for the worst of evils. Things like immorality, witchcraft, or idolatry. You see, their behavior was offensive to God. Their behavior was offensive to God. And what is it that's so revolting to God? The answer is found at the end of that verse. They had married Pagan women. They married the daughters of a foreign God. And the Bible is filled with examples of what happens when godly people, two godly people, when they unite with unbelievers. I mean, when Judah returned from captivity, they saw these beautiful foreign foxes. And they decided that they wanted to hook up with these heathen hotties. Seriously. And so they left the wife of their youth. They left the covenant of of Almighty God and they went and they began to marry these foreign women who worshiped false gods, who worshiped idols. And what happened was they divorced their wives, they married these women And interestingly, the word marry here was used, the word that is used is the word for Baal, the pagan gods whose sensual religion had been an ongoing temptation for the Israelites. If you go all the way back, this is the end, Malachi is at the end of the the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to almost the beginning of of the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 25, they're still struggling. They, they, they started struggling with this and they struggled all through the Old Testament. It says the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. They invited the Israelites to the sacrifices, the pagan idol sacrifices, and it says uh, of their gods, and the people ate and bowed to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. So it goes all the way back to right after the Exodus, when they were headed to the promised land, they began to take on these foreign women. It has never been God's plan for believers to marry unbelievers. I mean, in in 2 Corinthians, I'm telling you the truth. I want you to hear the truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And the, the, the application to marriage is obvious. A believer is not to be yoked together or bound together in, in marriage with another Uh, they are to be yoked together with another believer so that together they can serve the Lord together, okay? 
and, and carry his light load. See, if you claim to love God and then willfully choose to unite yourself with a non-Christian in the most intimate union this side of heaven, then the Bible says that you are desecrating the holiness of God. Don't let your drive for human intimacy lead your heart to grow cold toward your heavenly father. See, I want you to take special notice of the word loves. And the reason God's reprimand is so resolute is because God loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you with a great and everlasting love. And the reason he says don't do this is because he wants your heart committed to him. He wants to be on the throne of your life. He doesn't want to compete. You shall have no other gods before me. And so the reason he says this is because he wants your heart. And he wants you to decide something a long time before you have all of these regrets down the road. Let me make two quick points before I move on here. It is possible for unbelieving spouses to come to Christ. I've seen this happen and so have you. If you're married right now to someone who does not confess their faith in Christ, then I encourage you to read 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 3, uh, verse 1 through 6, and it talks about what kind of lifestyle that spouse needs to live. And, and in the message it says this, cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. Be that sweet aroma to your unbelieving spouse. Secondly, if you're married to a non-Christian, don't try to get out of that relationship because the unbelieving spouse sanctifies, is sanctified through the faith of the believer. You still have hope in godly children. So keep praying and keep providing the environment for God to work. Now, if the choice of a marriage partner still lies out there ahead of you, Settle it in your heart and in your mind right now that you're not going to marry an unbeliever. Don't marry somebody that doesn't love the Lord Jesus with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Just don't do it because you're going to have a hard, hard row to hoe. See, we're to keep faith with others by not allowing our relationship to rupture and we're to keep faith with God by not uniting with unbelievers. But that leads to the third instance here of acting faithlessly, which is God's call to faithfulness. Principle number three, keep faith with your spouse. Keep faith with your spouse. Don't get divorced. Now, in God's sight, marriage is a covenant relationship. The covenant relationship is binding and must be taken seriously. And Malachi warned that the Lord, verse 14, the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, the marriage is a covenant with God between a man and a woman and almighty God. It's one plus one plus one equals one. Because you and the, and the woman, the man and the woman and God Become one with him. He's the triune God. He holds our commitment together. 
Now, let me make just a a preliminary point or two here in reference to verse 16. Verse 16 says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God does hate divorce. God hates divorce. We can't water this down and try to act like he doesn't. But understand this, that divorce is not the only thing that God hates. Sometimes we single out divorce and and forget what God said in Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19. And he says this, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, proud eyes, being filled with pride, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. All of these are things that God hates. He says, when he says, God, I hate divorce, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God, there is other things that he hates too. And I want you to understand something here. God hates divorce, and here's why. Divorce is a violent action. Divorce is a violent action emotionally, socially, spiritually, and many times physically. God hates divorce because he loves his people. He knows how tragic it is. He knows how hurtful it is. He loves his people. God hates divorce, but God does not hate divorced people. We need to hear that. God does not hate divorced people. I mean, some of us have been wounded by divorce. Some of you have have been wounded by that. Maybe you're suffering from that from the the incredible pain right now, but whatever the circumstance of your divorce, whatever the circumstances was, God does not hate you. God loves you. He loves you. And God does not forbid all divorce. There's a couple of instances, restricted conditions, 1 Corinthians 7, 15 teaches that if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave and break it off, then the the believer can let them go. And also in Matthew 5, 32, Jesus recognized that in the case of adultery, in the case of infidelity and adultery, the one who was wronged is not obligated to stay married. But having said that, God's heart is always for reconciliation and restoration of the marriage covenant. He always wants to redeem and restore. Now let me say here that I know and I recognize that the church has not always been a great healing community. I acknowledge that the church in general has not always been an oasis of understanding And in some instances, the church may have been overly harsh on individuals who have been stung and hurt by divorce. And I know that we've not done a great job of providing all the support that was needed. 
And for that, I'm genuinely grieved because God loves his people. See, I believe it would be helpful and I'm very supportive to launch some ministries that would benefit those who are walking through this this heartbreaking tragedy. I'm not a marriage expert, I'm no Dr. Phil. I've not walked in your shoes, but please don't assume that I'm a perfect husband because I'm not. Some of you have experienced pain, the likes of which I hope I never experience. I'm just a fellow follower of Christ, striving to put him first in my marriage. I would say lastly, there's a call here to diligence. Through Malachi, God warned his people to prevent these sins of unequally being yoked together and breaking marriages when he said twice, in verse 15 and 16. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, do not break faith with the wife of your youth or against the wife of your youth. So the Lord's ideal is to have the right person to have and to hold, the one that God gives you and to hold on to that person diligently so long as life permits. Now very quickly, I wanna give you some application here for those who are trying to keep your marriage covenant. Um, first, I wanna say this, take responsibility for your own growth spiritually. Each one of us needs to be intent on growing spiritually. You'll not be the husband or the wife your spouse needs unless you take that responsibility for, for your own spiritual growth. Only an open and teachable person can love your spouse the way they need to be loved. Secondly, I would say stay committed no matter what. Divorce is not an option, don't joke about it. Don't even think about it. Because God's intention for marriage is for one man and one woman to commit themselves to each other and building a godly home and living in a marriage that fulfills and and helps them become what God intends them to be. Folks, it's a challenge for all of us. Don't bail on your spouse, stay committed. Thirdly, I would say put some boundaries in place. I mean, do you love God and your spouse enough to put some boundaries in place? I said earlier, guys, if you're looking at women, stop it, because that will undermine. Put some boundaries in place. If you want to stay married, then put some boundaries in place. The greatest gift you can give your spouse is is to set up some of these boundaries in your marriage and in your life. Make a commitment not to be alone with somebody of the opposite sex. Put Put some boundaries. Have some grit. Fourthly, I would say commit to communicate. A good marriage is filled with communication. Communication is one of the keys to a great marriage. Take time to talk. And when you have a disagreement, don't go to bed angry. Talk it through. May mean some late nights, but I guarantee you it'll be worth it. Number five, always think the best of your spouse. <laughs> don't make things moral matters that are just a preference. I mean, keep, cut each other some slack. You're in this together. This is your partner. This is, you, you, the two become one. And lastly, I would say this. 
be a servant. One of the best ways to to have a marriage that lasts is discover the secret of serving your spouse. But listen, no matter what you've done or what you've not done or how you're hurting, I just want you to hear what God says out of Psalm 103. Verse 11 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And then in verse, uh, Psalm 105 verse 8 says, he has remembered his covenant forever the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Because he is a covenant-keeping God, because of who he is, we can keep our covenant with one another. We can keep our covenant with him because he holds that covenant, and we can keep our covenant with our spouse because he's the one who holds our commitment. See, as our worship team begins to come back up and lead us again, I just want to ask you to bow your head for a moment. And in a moment, I'm going to pray. But you know, this relationship thing is is what God is all about. And he loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. He gave his son so that we might live. But you see, we have to accept him and we have to accept his sacrifice for my sin. Each one of us needs to do that. I can't do it for you. And if you've never acknowledged Jesus as your Savior and Lord, all I can say is you need to do that today. You need to come to Christ, asking him to forgive you of your sin, to repent. To repent means to turn from that, turn away from your sin and turn to him. Repent of that sin. And begin that relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, God is faithful even when we are not. And his call today is for all of us to repent. There are things in our hearts, in our lives, that we need to give to him. For us to turn from our selfishness back to him and allow Jesus Christ to reign in our lives and in our hearts. So I ask you, will you respond to him today? How will you respond? To not respond is a response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for what you are doing in each one of our lives. And Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, that you love us enough to tell us the truth. And Father, I pray that we would repent of the sin in our lives. Father, that we would repent of the things that that we've done. Father, that against you, that we've broken faith with you. Father, when we've broken faith with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us. And Father, that we would grasp 
just a little, a glimpse of your greatness, of your faithfulness to us, that even when we have turned our backs on you, you still love us. Even when we've not done what was right, you still love us. Even when we haven't responded and we've, we've been indifferent to your word, you still love us. Father, you've loved us with an everlasting love to a thousand generations. Father, I pray that we as your people would give you the glory and the honor that is due your name. And Father, we would bow before you in reverence, in humility, and in repentance for what we've done and what we've not done. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.